Welcome to the next 100. I'm Neil Fraser, uh, the president of Medtronic Canada, and I'm just absolutely honored uh, to introduce two special guests today. First, Dr. Sasha Batia, who's the executive lead of population health and value-based health systems at Ontario Health, and uh, previously led uh, the Health System Solutions and Innovation Group at the Women's College Hospital. So welcome, Dr. Batya. And secondly, Dr. Sunny Malhotra, who is uh, both a practicing cardiologist and an entrepreneur of RP Automation Systems. Welcome, Dr. Malhotra. We thought we would ask you each to talk a bit about how virtualization uh, of care is uh, leading to modernization of care. Virtualization uh, really is something that we've been talking about in healthcare for a really long time, but you know it really did take a pandemic to really create the impetus for change. Uh, frankly, uh, we've often had a fairly provider-centric uh, system. And so, you know, if you're a doctor and uh, there's limited incentive for you to like see patients through a variety of means, it's, you know, it's easy to just sort of fall into old habits and do, you know, and, and, and do things the way you always have been. What's been really interesting about the pandemic is it fundamentally shifted something that we call the cost of contact. So the idea was, you know, prior to the pandemic, the cost, there's always been costs of in-person care. You know, think about it. If you're a, you know, a mom, uh, you know, with two kids and you're working, you know, you have to figure out if you've got to go to an appointment, you've got to figure out childcare for your kids, you've got to be able to like or take time off work, you've got to be able to travel to your doctor. There's a number of different costs that are there. Most of those costs were borne out by the patient, not necessarily by the provider. But with the pandemic, what we've actually seen is a shift in those costs because you know when we had when you know, starting in March of 2020, fundamentally, like you know, you couldn't see as many people. Um, you had uh, significant uh, risk both to other patients as well as to your staff and to yourself in terms of infection with COVID costs of PPE, costs of testing, you know, all these sorts of things that suddenly change costs of increased cleaning. All of that added uh, material costs to practices, hospitals, primary care clinics, uh, other clinics, etc. And so suddenly virtualization became a really important mechanism uh, within the pandemic to really be able to lower that cost of contact. In, in Ontario, where I practice, Virtualization went from like virtual care went from 1% of provider interactions to almost 70% of provider interactions almost overnight. And that did happen uh, because the government decided to pay for virtual care and virtual visits. But it also happened again because of this impetus, because of the shift, uh, you know, in, in trying to keep patients safe. Dr. Malhotra, you have a real interest in uh, automating healthcare and, and integrating data science and, and process optimization. Where is this at currently and how do you see that moving ahead, maybe from a policy uh, perspective as well as technology? I think Dr. Bhatia brought up a very good point. Virtualization of healthcare right now has become more patient focused. And uh, we think about three different buckets, right? We've already had the infrastructure created, for example, in Ontario with Ontario Telemedicine Network. Um, and 
bringing the care to the patient itself um, has been shown to be, you know, provide a lower cost of care while also increasing access. And so the virtual care task force just came out with a report with a few recommendations about the virtualization of healthcare and how it should move forward in regards to policy and its reimbursement of it. Because if you can't reimburse uh, the activity, then you run into challenges down the road. So there's three areas, connect, connected care, making sure that the patient, no matter where they are, is connected. And we had some infrastructure that was built up before COVID, and then that allowed uh, virtualization to occur. The second area is connect care anywhere, right? So if I can, um, you know, make sure that the care is being provided from any place um, and that the infrastructure, the internet, the Wi-Fi, whatever the case may be, is high enough quality that that care can be delivered, that's important. And then making sure that the care has networks. So the network effect of making sure that the care is delivered to the patient's home or wherever they need to be, that's important to make sure that the quality of care is maintained long-term as well. That's a clinical side of the virtualization of healthcare, but I think there's also the administrative side that we've seen. Um, There's the great resignation, there's the increased cost of admin, um, you know, there's the resource allocation of nursing staff, for example, that have gone into clinical care and could not do as much administration. And so what you're going to see, you know, in the next hundred years is going to be an AI or um, automation strategy for a lot of these processes. And so what I mean by that is if, you know, 25 to 30% of your admin costs are going to delivery of healthcare, automating that using an AI strategy is something akin to what we're Uh, we've experienced, you know, 10 years ago where we would say an EMR strategy was novel. But now the AI strategy, if you're going to look back another, you know, 100 years from now, you're going to say, how could I have ever practiced without an AI strategy or without an automation strategy? And so my area of focus is artificial intelligence and something called robotic process automation. There's not a lot, this is a novel form of AI and automation, whereby we use software robots to automate uh, clinical processes and task flows uh, by using software robots. And these software robots act like any full-time employee. Uh, they have metaphorical eyes where they can read an electronic medical record. They have, um, you know, metaphorical brain, which we train and process. And then we have uh, the third component, which is metaphorical hands. So they can enter in keystrokes as well as entering mouse clicks to automate a lot of the stuff that we'll see on the, you know, front lines, which is, you know, on an outpatient and an inpatient setting with the healthcare providers um, as well. You know, we hear about uh, physician burnout and, and is there p- the potential with automation and, and, and with virtualization that um, physicians, you know, are, are uh, connected all the time to their patients? And, and uh, you know, really deleterious to their uh, well-being. You know, I think the short answer in my in, in what I've seen is yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you you see data on physician burnout, and I've seen it actually in our own practices and 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 on you know on the front lines. And I think part of it is is you're right. We connected everybody very fast, right? We suddenly went from a time when. The idea of emailing your doctor or connecting through secure messaging was basically like almost unheard of in Canada anyways, to a time when, in fact, connectivity virtually was very ubiquitous. And that happened very, very quickly. And we didn't put in the right care processes and and the right automation systems in order to do that. So as Dr. Molitor, I think, so aptly points out, 
what we saw was physicians getting called or getting messages for everything under the sun, right? So everything from administrative tasks around medication refills to administrative questions around bookings to, you know, a number of, to, to you know, serious medical questions, right? And the challenge is when you're, when you're a doc is it's like, and you get an email from a patient, the fact is, is it's, it's, there's a nervousness around not responding, and not responding in a timely manner. How long does it take? How long should I have? Now, different hospitals are developing policies around this. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, there needs to be one, a mechanism by which, you know, urgent, you can triage and purely administrative tasks that should never go to the physician in the first place. They should go to an appropriate person. Two, there should be, you know, a mechanism by which you can start to triage. And again, I'd love to get, you know, Dr. Malhotra as a, you know, as an innovator, this is, a, I think, a great opportunity, is a way to triage the stuff that's non-urgent or can be more routinized. And then the things that truly are urgent that, you know, need to be addressed in a relatively short period of time. So it, this is about developing new processes that I think will make this sustainable, which we haven't done yet. And, and I guess, you know, that that um, it, it doesn't always need to be uh, live, that you speak to a doctor, you could, uh, you know, you could do it asynchronously or offline so that, uh, you know, people could evaluate the urgency. And I, I imagine that's part of uh, your technology, Dr. Malhotra. Right. So, you know, this these software robots work um, whenever you want them to, they can be timed, they can work overnight. Um, you know, it's a virtual assistant essentially, right? I mean, it's a clinical yeah. virtual assistant. And so it works the same way any employee give, does and it works behind your firewall. So you give it a username and password like you would employ an employee. It signs in, it logs in, it does the work. That's it, it's batch work, it gets it done. And then, you know, it's ready for your clinician. There's attended and then there's unattended automation. Attended means that there's somebody there working with it during the time that it's doing the automation. Um, and then unattended is it just does it on its own. And then afterwards, it's ready for you in the morning, you know, by the time you need it. Dr. Batia, you know, you mentioned that we went from 1% to 70% uh, virtual care. And, and, and most of it was, was telephone or, or like this, uh, a Zoom call. But uh, increasingly, you know, patients have their own devices, whether it's a Apple Watch that detects mm -hmm. AF or... or they may have other other uh, technologies at home, and this creates another challenge: is uh, how do you accept data from, uh, you know, consumer devices and and uh, integrate this data into your uh, analysis and, and action plan? Have you had any experience with that? This is a huge issue at a policy level, right? Uh, so many of you, you know, may 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 know. Uh, that, uh, you know, Jane Philpott is leading a large piece of work for the government of Ontario called the Ontario Health, uh, you know, Data Platform or Ontario Health Data Council. I'm an ex officio member on that, uh, you know, as the Ontario Health representative. But it's an important endeavor, right? Because we've got to strike, Neil, an important balance between, you know, being able to provide data uh, and integrate it, you know, across multiplicity of like silos and providers, if we're going to take on patients with chronic disease and manage them really well, and at the same time, 
you know, recognize that we need to be able to protect privacy and security interests. And the challenge is, is you, is, you know, I'm sure you know, government doesn't always move that quickly. But the challenge is technology and technology companies now are moving at such a pace that it is a real challenge to be able to keep up. And I often say this, I, you know, I, I said this before I, I, I moved it into this new role. Right now, the vast majority of health data exists outside of the healthcare system. We give it freely. Like every time you have an Apple Watch, your oxygen saturation, your heart rate, you can do an ECG, you know, there's, uh, you know, people have a blood pressure cuff and other peripherals that are connected to that. Even your preferences when you search on Amazon or Facebook, AI algorithms can tell like, you know, a lot about you based on even just, you know, your ordering preferences or the things that you share. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're quickly moving into a world where the private sector is actually going to have more data about your health than we will as a publicly funded healthcare system. And so we're going to have to square this circle pretty quickly. Otherwise, we are going to become increasingly irrelevant. I think that it's an interesting challenge that we're presented with, but it's certainly something the government is like very keen on trying to uh, trying to tackle. We heard patients talking about access to their records involved photocopying, you know, stacks of of uh, handwritten records. There's just backlogs of data like this. I don't know if it'll ever really be uh, accessible. Well, and digitization was the first part for sure, yeah. right? Now we're in virtualization and now we're going to have an AI strategy. I think automation will be part of that. And uh, it, solving this interoperability issue is going to be very important. The reality is, is patients actually don't need us to give them permission to have access to their own data. Like they can do it themselves. Like they can, as a patient at Women's College, as an example, like I can get all of my downloaded, you know, uh, data from their patient portal, but it gets integrated, you know, onto my Apple phone, right? Through, uh, you know, my health record. And I can start to integrate that across multiple providers. And so as a consequence, that integration is happening. And it's just not happening in like our publicly funded system. And so this is why I say like we have to get ahead, we have to think about this and 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 tackle our approach to this fairly quickly because if we sort of like in a fairly Canadian fashion sort of hum and haw about this and wait, the reality is it will have already been done. And, and so, so I think this is where, I do think this is where the government in Ontario is really thinking about this and is, uh, you know, with, with Dr. Philpott's leadership is driving, you know, this forward it will be important from an innovation perspective, but I think most importantly, it'll be important from a patient perspective. So as, as we sort of move towards uh, closing uh, the discussion off, each of you, um, I'd be interested in your thoughts, uh, getting back to the theme of the next hundred years. Um, so thinking about where we are today, where, where are we going? Where, where do you see us maybe in the next 10 or, or beyond years? I'll tell you where a lot of AI has been pushing as far as AI strategy is concerned, okay? Uh, clinical, administrative, and um, clinical is broken down into clinical delivery of care. So it's got to be omnichannel, procedural, and diagnostic. 
Okay, so I'll just talk about clinical for a second. Clinical, providing the omnichannel way of delivering care, we have the tools. Implementing that with policy changes is, um, is something that we're going to see or have seen already. Clinical for diagnostic, a lot of people have been using CNNs uh, or neural networks to evaluate images, tag them, similar to the way that we do autonomous driving, tag them and say, okay, this is likely to be this type of diagnosis. So that's what you're going to see for uh, diagnostics, whether they be radiology or if you're doing a colonoscopy, for example, um, there are tools that are software interfaces that are on top of, you know, doing a colonoscopy saying this looks like a polyp, this has a certain percentage of being high grade, for example, or an echocardiogram. We're already working on it right now. And there are companies that are doing this uh, in Canada for, and from Australia or from Y Combinator. Then there's a procedural component. Now that's where robotics, which is different than robotic process automation gets involved. And you start to see where AI or manual manipulation of these sorts of things um, does procedures and whether that happens you know, in places where we don't have access or we don't have physicians, for example, um, it remains to be seen, but it is something that you know, Department of Defense and a lot of other um, you know, AI companies are working on. Administratively, I, I think that a lot of administrative work, uh, interoperability solutions are going to be improved upon now and has been improving as we start to see an increasing percentage of penetration in the healthcare market of AI and robotic process automation. It started off around 11%. Now it's increasing and there's a 41% uh, cumulative gross, uh, annual gross rate for RPA implementation and AI implementation uh, across North America. So you're going to see a lot of administrative work being automated and you're going to see a lot lower cost of delivery of care when you bring the care to the patient and when you automate a lot of the work or the administrative work that accounts for 25 to 35% of your clinical delivery cost. Those are going to be the areas just in a kind of an algorithmic way of thinking uh, down the road um, in the next hundred years. Listen, I'd like to thank both uh, Dr. Bacha and Dr. Malhotra for your excellent contributions uh, to today and to our, our uh, podcast series. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us. And we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you.